Chapter 20, My Own Worst Enemy The opening quote for this chapter is an ancient Sanskrit verse. The wise esteem the contempt of the arrogant more than the elixir of the gods. Humility sleeps soundly at night. Pride lies awake, fearing its own downfall. Scanning my memory for those that might be receptive to coaching, I called former clients to check in and test the waters as a professional coach. Even though I was calling to find a way to be of help, in many conversations I balk, because after all, was I not an utter and total failure? Wasn't I a complete fraud? Here I was professing that I could help others find their blind spots, when clearly I had failed to do so for myself. In spite of such thoughts and others more foreboding, I persevered in my effort to find one or two people who would allow me to help them, hoping some wisdom might be available to others from what I'd endured. After experimenting with different ways of introducing myself as a coach, rather than a recruiter, I find I'm not well received when my strategy involves telling a former client that they had often seemed stress and that coaching might benefit them. But if I call to check in and let them know I now worked as a professional coach, almost everyone would say, oh, I know who could really use coaching. But they would only mention a coworker, spouse, relation, or boss. Never did anyone say, boy, I could sure use coaching. Because to admit one needed it was to admit they needed help, and the people I knew were not in the habit of doing so. As a new strategy, I began asking for introductions to those who could use help. This usually resulted in being given a name, phone number, or email address, leaving me to make the contact. I found this approach did not work so well either because it didn't bode well for a prospective client to hear his colleagues thought he was floundering. It didn't matter how diplomatically I might try to introduce the topic of coaching. All the person hears is that others believe he's failing. Approaching potential clients in this manner only put them on the defensive and sabotaged any real chance for a coaching engagement. And this is what happened, but only once or twice until I realized the futility of such strategies. It seemed that many had the same reaction as myself about coaching. They didn't need to be coached, but everyone else did. But to benefit from coaching, you have to want it. To want coaching, you had to recognize the need. To recognize the need, you had to be aware that things were not working. To be aware that things are not working, you had to know that other options existed. To know that other options existed, you needed to recognize that the discomfort experienced in life resulted from comparing what was expected with what needs to be accepted. If you can't take these steps, you won't see any value in coaching. My second strategy was to have the referring party make the introduction and then give the referral my contact information. This was safer but no more effective simply because telling a person they needed help was no guarantee of them taking the initiative. Most people need to be in dire straits to be convinced they needed to take action. Finally, I came upon a strategy that was painless, truthful, and effective. I began to contact those who knew me, asking if they would be willing to be interviewed for a book I was writing called Corporate CPR. No sooner had the words, interview for a book, come out of my mouth did the conversation get interesting. As a result, I was able to enter into coaching engagements with a number of executives, a few of which are summarized below for the purpose of illustrating the power of blind spots to hinder success in the corporate environment in the same way that it does for the individual. Remember, business is always personal. David is the first CEO I interviewed. 
who had founded his company based on knowledge he'd acquired designing microprocessors. The purpose of his startup was to automate many of their tedious steps, enabling highly complex custom-integrated circuits to be completed on a greatly reduced timeline. What follows is the proposal I sent to invite him into a coaching relationship after our first meeting. I had been reflecting upon our last conversation and suspected you might find a proposal that outlines the parameter of a coaching engagement helpful in your decision-making process. But before I provide you with that outline, I want to share with you my observations from our talk. I greatly appreciated the time you took to speak with me. You were generous with your time and gracious in demeanor, allowing me to share with you the theme of my book and the role of coaching in business. What I hoped to convey in our talk was the idea that the CEO is directly responsible for how his or her company expresses itself. Just as you are the CEO of your body with its physical well-being as an external reflection of your thoughts about yourself, so is the corporation a type of body that reflects the same. And if you accept this premise, could you agree that for change to take place in your company, it must start with you and your beliefs about what you are attempting to accomplish? The difficulty is that the beliefs that drive us are invisible and exist as blind spots. We just do not see them. So naturally, we have difficulty working with them. Yet their effect is still felt. As a result, companies are imbued with both the strengths and weaknesses of their CEO. Realizing this, there have been many books, seminars, and themes of self-development designed to equip CEOs with tools for success. Some talk about how to negotiate, relate, lead, and communicate, while others deal with trust, delegation, and team building. And while all of these have their place, they may overlook the CEO's inability to recognize that the breakdowns that show up in the company are the same that show up in their private life. When I asked you why you started the company, you replied, I wanted to see if I could do it. At first, your response sounded provocative to me. It made me wonder why it was you thought you could not do it. Who was it that said you could not? Where in your life had you been told this? Then you shared a distinction of how you were trained in sports and the military, where you were demeaned, put down, and told that you were no good as a way to build character. I wondered if that experience instilled the belief that you must encounter great obstacles to succeed and that your idea of success was defined primarily as achieving what others said you could not. If you look at the history of your company as well as other events in your life, this truth might reveal itself. Your executive board said you lacked the necessary experience to run your own company, changed the direction of your company, brought in a president who drained your funds, and then after that, suggested you take the direction that your company had already been designed to pursue. Can you see how you have drawn events to yourself based on a belief of success that requires you to struggle against formidable obstacles? Can you see how starting a company to see if you could do it proceeded from a hidden belief that you could not, which set the stage for a success that must be forged out of the need to prove yourself against tremendous odds? And having realized this, are you interested in a different success that does not ask you to struggle so much. If you are, coaching will help you achieve that by illuminating the beliefs that drive you so you can transform your blind spots into bright spots and breakdowns into breakthroughs. He never followed through with my invitation to coaching, and before the year was out, his company closed its doors without achieving any measure of success. The first president I coached was an executive in the wireless communications industry who had transitioned to medical electronics. Once there, he quickly found that his old ways of doing business no longer served him. 
they only revealed a lack of competence that previously had remained hidden. Bert was a likable person who used his sizable ego to hide his fears that others would find out the truth, that he had no idea what he was doing. To compensate, he had developed an unconscious habit of badgering others verbally and emotionally, thereby keeping them off balance so that they were too busy trying to find their center that they never noticed he did not have one either. As part of his arsenal of smoke and mirrors, he had one of those voices that dripped with authority, something I now refer to as the voice. How Bert had gotten into the executive ranks was uncertain. One thing was for sure, he did not say what he meant, nor mean what he said. Unsurprisingly, this had created resentment in the work environment and a breakdown in the corporate culture. In spite of the coaching development plan I designed for him, he never did any of the work. Instead, he would call me many times each day, sometimes late at night, asking advice on everything he needed to know to run his company, and taking notes on all of my answers. Our business relationship was something other than coaching. Happy to be of service, I took all of his calls, but over time it became clear that he was not learning or internalizing anything, nor was he becoming self-sufficient. Instead, he had become more demanding of my time and more dependent on my advice. In the end, frustrated with the type of relationship I had enabled, I brought it to an end. Lori was a vice president at a major bank who was not only attractive and intelligent, but was a formidable executive to boot. She had tremendous, even eerily accurate intuition, insight, and a willing heart. But every time she was put on the spot and asked to provide evidence for what she knew, even if it was in a casual setting, she reverted to the emotional behavior of an adolescent who was being terrorized by her father who had demanded her to produce answers. Like a deer caught in the headlights, she would freeze, preventing her from sharing what she knew. Because of this, she conducted her life in fast-forward, as if on speed, trying to stay ahead of others' questions while struggling to appear composed on the outside. Ultimately, she was unwilling to slow down enough to settle into the situations that challenged her to see the calm and direct path through. Curtis was an extremely charismatic and likable guy who, through a series of successes, found himself as president of a high-technology company in the Silicon Valley. During a routine coaching conversation, he said something that revealed the blind spot at the basis of the communications problem that challenged his company. He harbored the belief that he was not as smart or talented as those who vied for his position. After hearing him state this, I asked why he thought this was so. Not answering directly, he made reference to the fact that those who competed for his position were younger, smarter, and better educated, which made him feel as if he was running out of time to make it big. I asked him why this was a problem when he already has more industry experience. Curtis fell silent and gazed out the window as if his answer might be found there. Without returning his attention to the room, he reminisced about his time at the lower-tier college he attended, how he used to party a lot and barely receive passing grades because he felt he didn't have answers to questions. Hearing his confession and knowing what I did about his company, it was obvious why he'd become skillful at not answering questions or requests directly. Instead, he would deflect, challenge, or attack them in a manner that made it difficult for his co-workers to know what to do. It wasn't that he didn't want to provide answers and directions. He just doubted himself, and in order to hide this from others, he would contest everyone's input, which only served to foster a situation where everyone was looking to him for direction 
when he had none. Victoria was someone I had known for many years during her employment with various companies. She worked in human resources and was ever the compassionate and articulate spokesperson for doing the right thing, which left her with the short end of the stick after a corporate acquisition. Fearing she would lose her job because of the unethical tactics that the new CEO employed to clean house, she started to second-guess her decisions to such an extent that she began to actually make mistakes. This led to panic attacks, not eating weight loss, and bouts of depression from which she could not easily extricate herself. She was too fearful to simply state the truth of her experience, believing doing so would indicate that she was out of control. Ultimately, she ended up in a situation that unnecessarily terminated her employment. Benson was a consultant to the venture funding arm of a major East Coast industrial company. In spite of his lifelong personality challenges, he possessed a brilliant mind and thought we should work together, so he engaged me as a coach to address his challenges at work. He told me that his client company had made no advance in profitability over the last decade. Instead, they created the illusion of profitability by reducing costs and staff. But there was no real innovation, and they needed some if they were to survive which was a difficult thing to do because change meant taking risks, and the people needing to take them were adverse to doing so. They could lose their credibility, position, or get passed over for a promotion. Benson went on to say that what had taken the place of innovation was an environment of fear, and this had caused many, even at the highest level, to avoid saying or doing anything that would rock the boat. Benson, while being brilliant, did not suffer fools gladly and was frequently quite brutal with his laser-like communications process, which made those already fearful feel even more so. To his credit, he did have the uncanny ability to see the future outcomes of lines of logic and business plans in an instant. If you began to describe a product or marketing strategy before you got a tenth of the way there, he was standing at all the possible finishing lines impatiently waiting to tell you why this or that one would or would not work. It was actually a little scary to work with him. But no matter how insightful he might be, he could not trace the steps he had taken from start to finish. He could only start and in a flash be done. He had no process, and this made it impossible for others to keep up. Meanwhile, his impatience rattled those around him, and since his frustrations came across as anger, those who needed hand-holding ended up lagging even further behind. As a result, he left a lifetime of failed relationships in his wake. Wishing to change, he enlisted my help to coach his communications process, thinking I would be the mouthpiece for his strategic genius. Together we developed a strategy that would allow him to introduce me as a corporate coach to the general manager of his business unit, who would then interface with the CEOs of the more desirable projects Benson wanted to fund. Benson's thinking was that by having me coach the members of his venture team and the CEOs of the new ventures they were considering for funding, that everyone would benefit by having high-quality projects enter the company's venture funding process. The first step in the strategy involved having discussions with a few of the true gems of innovation that were seeking funding, but before they could make their presentation, they had to get past Benson, who said in his usual frank manner that the entrepreneurs with the greatest ideas can't speak to the listening of their customers to save their life. So, he introduces me to the CEOs of these potentially viable companies, thinking I could coach them in their ability to communicate. 
Norm is the first such CEO, an attorney turned real estate developer with an amazing robotic technology that can build 10 fully finished custom homes a day in a 500,000 square foot factory. Not prefab modular homes, but robotically meticulous custom designed homes for 30% less than site built. After our first talk, he invited me to his office to hear his presentation and solicit my feedback. When he is done, I told him that as interested as I am in construction and robotic technology, I find his presentation lacking because it spoke to real estate investors, which were not the appropriate audience for his project. I told him that his project was high-tech meets construction and would never achieve its potential as a real estate deal. We broke for lunch and talked some more, after which he invited me to Los Angeles to meet the members of his team. In L.A., we sat through a previously scheduled status meeting with a friendly real estate investor who was supposed to endorse the project. The chief marketing, manufacturing, and technology officers, along with the managing director of the European Robotics Company, give their presentations. At lunch, everyone sat together, and after some small talk, the chief marketing officer asks what I thought of the project. I tell them, honestly, that the concept is brilliant, adding that there is one thing I do not understand. When Norm signals it's okay to ask my question, I say, why is it that Lou here, your friendly investor, an advocate, and a viable customer for this building technology, has not yet invested? Stunned by the frankness of my query, the chief marketing guy tries to recover by saying that Lou is still kicking tires and trying to get his colleagues involved, but they haven't committed yet. I ask the chief marketing guy if he has ever asked Lou what he needs to know in order to buy into the project, to which the CMO sheepishly replies, no, I never thought of that. So I turn to Lou and ask, do you know what you need to know to invest in this project? Because it occurs to me that once you take your position as an investor, others are more likely to follow. Watching Lou, it's obvious that he didn't know what to say because he had the same look on his face that I must have had when James asked me why I said I was driven to spirituality at a young age. Like me, he's just sitting there with a blank look on his face. The waiter comes over to take our orders, which rescues him for a moment from his own awkward silence. But since I have yet to get an answer to my question, when the waiter leaves, I ask again, only to find Lou has that deer-in-the-headlight look once more. Meanwhile, everyone around the table is getting uncomfortable, even though it is clear that I've thought to ask the most obvious question. This time, instead of answering me, Lou changes the subject. After he's done and there's a space for me to ask, I say, Lou, please don't take offense at what I'm asking. It's just that without knowing the conditions under which you will participate, there is no way this company can ever speak to it. Furthermore, the more time spent not clarifying your conditions only serves to diminish the viability of this business proposition. So please tell us, for everyone's sake, what do you need to know to make your investment? Finally, Lou blurts out a little angrily and a lot embarrassed that he does not know what he needs to know to make an investment. After he's done, I thank him for his candor, and I turn to Norm and say, this is what I meant when I said that you must speak to the listening of your customer. You must know what he's listening for, even if he doesn't yet know, if you have any hope of addressing his needs. And to speak to the listening of the customer, you need to know what makes him a customer and what he needs to hear to allow him to perform his role. Also, you need to be speaking to the right customer, and it's not Lou, and it's not the real estate investment community. It's high technology, because I know many venture capitalists who would be drooling over this deal simply for the fact that the financials are outstanding. 
A week later at Benson's house, we discuss the events that transpired in L.A. and create a plan to launch this company. We understand that first we must have the right story and team if we hope to interest the investment community. Clearly, Norm does not have the right story or team. Benson suggests that I take the role of president, spokesman, and fundraiser for the company. When Norm calls a few days later to ask my opinion of the team he's assembled, I give him a detailed assessment of each person and then tell him that the only person on the team worth keeping was the technology guy from New York. Norm agrees to this, saying in his defense that these guys have been loyal to him in spite of the fact that he has no contractual agreements with any of them, and now he feels badly about letting them go. I agree that he needs to be fair to those who helped him thus far, and that I can help him achieve this goal. He says he's willing to do what is necessary to have the company succeed, but his only caveat is that he remains CEO. After agreeing to have me function as the president of the company, which ultimately makes it possible to move my family into our own home in Boulder, he asks me what I think about him as the CEO. I tell him that with coaching, he could pull it off. Before getting off the phone, he tells me that his being CEO is non-negotiable, and if I'm willing to help him under these conditions, he would like to invite me to Europe to visit with the subcontractors of the various technologies that complete his vision. I agree, and a few weeks later, we land at Heathrow Airport in London. As I get to know more about the players in the project, a strategy evolves on how to launch this company. Upon returning to the States, Benson and I talk extensively about the scope and nature of that strategy. What I'm learning through my coaching conversations with Norm is that he is motivated by a belief that others see him as incompetent, and being afraid of his own failure, he held the opinion that everyone was trying to marginalize him. To make himself feel safe, which only validated his self-limiting belief, he hired people he considered expendable and therefore easy to marginalize. This tendency showed up in both his personal and professional relationships. In an effort to help him transition through these self-limiting beliefs, I provided self-observation techniques and practices to illuminate the operation of his patterns so that he could choose to respond and not react whenever he noticed he was being triggered. Gradually, Norm starts to see the hidden forces operating in his life and finds improvements on many fronts. By the end of August, we have a well-written business plan with which to initiate discussions with investors. The first presentation I made as president of this robotic startup is to the general manager of Benson's client company back east. Next, we talk with venture capital groups on Sand Hill Road in the Silicon Valley until we get a buy-in from one that offers to take the lead in the raise, subject to us bringing a builder-investor-customer to take a minority interest in the deal. I scheduled a meeting with a European builder who was already utilizing robotic construction framing platforms to solicit him as an investor. After introducing our project and getting his buy-in, I received a phone call from a visionary fourth-generation building executive in Southern California. Earlier that week, Benson and I had met with the man's father, who, being impressed with our project, had encouraged his son to speak with us. After a brief presentation to the son, he told us we had the solution to a problem that he had been struggling with for years. Gathering steam with each phone call and meeting, I continue to network until I have three builder customer investors committed to purchase the annual production of our factory, a commitment from the Sand Hill Road firm to lead the raise. Gathering steam with each phone call and meeting, I continue to network until I have three builder customer investors committed to purchase the annual production of our factory, 
a commitment from the Sand Hill Road firm to lead the raise, one of Silicon Valley's prominent builders and their partner for another $6 million and an additional $1.3 million bridge loan to hold us over until the deal was closed. All this came about within the first 90 days since Norm hired me as president. The only glitch was that not one investor could see Norm as the long-term CEO for the startup, basically because he came across as being incompetent. By February of 2006, the visionary real estate developer in Southern California put money into the deal, brought his people to the team, and began to navigate the deal away from high-tech investors to real estate ones. Norm desperate for others to carry the funding of the project and fearful he would not fare well as CEO if the high-tech community leads the raise, aligns himself with this new group of real estate developers. He believed he was playing to his strengths, especially if he elects to work with the real estate community. After all, Norm is an attorney-turned-real estate developer himself, which is why he was courting that group for funding prior to bringing me on board. But he forgot he was dead in the water with that group for over three years before my arrival, and now, motivated by his fear of being marginalized, walks away from the high-tech investors who were willing to fund him as the initial CEO towards the new real estate investor group with the belief that at least he can hold his own in that environment. During this period, the newly assembled LA group begins to analyze the profit margins of the project, and even though they are sound, they believe that the real estate investment community will think they're too good to be true. In an effort to make the project believable, they dumb down the numbers. They raise the cost of the startup to reduce its profitability. Next, they assembled a very compelling hit list of potential investors with whom they already had personal relationships. Some of the folks on their list are ambassadors, politicians, heads of billion-dollar construction companies, famous actors, and many, many millionaires. After waving this flag of funding in Norm's face for a few weeks, the LA group started floating the idea that their investors don't know him, that he has no real track record in the construction industry, and would not have confidence in him as CEO. By March, it becomes clear that I will not be able to navigate the project back to the course Benson and I had originally designed, and lacking confidence in the direction Norm and the others had taken, I leave the project. Eight months later, I get a call from one of the executives in Norm's startup. He tells me that since I left, they've made no progress at all. Not one of the so-called heavy hitters invested after the LA Group finished dumbing down the original $18 million project. He added that the LA Group had padded every conceivable expense of the company and had artificially inflated cost and lowered the profit margin to such an extent that they had succeeded in increasing the minimum raise to $36 million. Now it was too expensive to justify investment. What they had done was succeed in imposing their own self-limiting beliefs on the project, and because they did so by proceeding from the belief that it was too good to be true, they had made it so. What did they do next? They decided to scale the project down to a pilot factory requiring only $12 million. The very next day, as if by magic, one of the venture capitalists from Sand Hill Road calls me to see if the project was still available. After telling him the status, he said his group will put the full $12 million in the deal and can close the funding in 30 days. I put the deal for the $12 million in Norm's hands, and 31 days later, he and his team have presented so poorly that the investors back out. Today, as far as I know, the project remains unfunded. The purpose of this recounting is to illustrate how the beliefs of the most powerful people in any organization structure its outcome. Norm believed he was incompetent and that others would marginalize him. 
As a result, even though he did everything to avoid it, he only succeeded in attracting what he most feared was true. One of the ways he did this was through his tendency to associate with those he considered less competent, that he could later marginalize because of education, wealth, intelligence, or lack of vision. Just look at the people he had originally brought to the project. It's not that they were unintelligent or unskillful. It's just that within the context of this particular project, they were not assets, but instead were enablers of Norm's fear of failure. Unfortunately, his beliefs not only limited his choices of teammates, but each must be as unqualified to achieve the goals he wanted as he was himself. More importantly, since his motivation for success was driven by his need to be seen as competent and in control, even if his incompetence as a premise was untrue, he was compelled to fulfill the tenets of his unconscious beliefs. In the end, his belief delivered the only outcome it could because of the conditions he'd set for himself. The real tragedy is that Norm was extremely competent. Had he employed each instance in which he felt his sense of incompetence emerge as an opportunity to examine it, he could have poofed it, and the world would now be benefiting from his vision. Manny was someone I had known for years. From our first meeting, he distinguished himself as a person who had not forgotten what it meant to be a human being in the workplace. He treated others with kindness, thoughtfulness, and honesty. Even when in pain or under stress, At the time of our coaching engagement, he was vice president of a company that had recently promoted someone to the office of CEO that Manny felt was unqualified and undesirable. The problem for Manny was that his new boss had a tendency to railroad conversations about possibilities into commitments for outcome before their ramifications could be assessed. Being a thoughtful, thorough, and methodical person, Manny needed time to think things through, which often made him the bottleneck in the organization. Despite this, everyone liked him, even those irritated at the pace at which he provided answers and the fact that he would not give you one unless he had examined it up, down, sideways, inside and out. Unfortunately, by the time he gave his answer, even though it was almost always correct, the window of opportunity to apply it could have slipped by months. This made many impatient and frustrated with Manny, who now increasingly burdened by the escalating circumstances of his role, calls me for help. When we meet for our first intake session, I asked him what was going on and what he was looking for as an outcome to coaching. He said that he hated his boss, his job, couldn't sleep at nights, and was so stressed that before his last vacation, he had a headache for months. On top of this, his CEO didn't seem to understand that he couldn't make ad hoc decisions in the engineering department just because he had made undeliverable promises to his board. But Manny was unable to tell him any of this, could not find the time to design a plan to streamline his job, was unable to insulate himself and team from the decisions of his CEO, nor could he tolerate his tactics of fear, control, and badgering that he employed to manipulate subordinates to perform. I asked Manny if he had thought about telling his boss what he is telling me. Sheepishly, he replied that he has not. I asked if he had told the founder. Again, Manny says no. When I asked why, he said that he was intimidated by them both. He was afraid of the brilliance of the founder and the forceful communication style of his new boss. As a result, before he could speak with either of them, he needed a perfectly thought-out plan that anticipated answers for every possible question they might ask. He couldn't simply engage them in a conversation about possibilities without first knowing all of their outcomes, and at present, 
he didn't have time to put such a plan together. The reason for Manny's verbal paralysis stemmed from his youth when he witnessed his father transform into a seething and venomous being when pushed to the edge of his not having answers. One minute his father would appear the picture of patience and kindness, and in the next a monster. Fearing he was the same monster, Manny was unwilling to entertain discussions without first knowing all the possible answers. Now, after a year of coaching, I observed that Manny remained unwilling to simply say, I don't know, nor would he take steps to invite others to participate in his fact-finding process. Instead, he would retreat to the sanctuary of his private thought process to consider every possible outcome in isolation, rather than free himself to invite others into his process of deliberation. Because of his fear of the consequences that he believed would follow when he was found out as not having answers, he imprisoned himself to a process that offered him no escape.